This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I cherish your participation every bit as much as I cherish my opportunity to share time together with you every week here on this show. Thanks so much for being there, and uh, thank you to those of you who actually ride in. That helps a lot. It really does. I love hearing from you, and um, I really do read them all. As a matter of fact, um, I, I should have prepared <laughs> for this, but uh, I just realized right now that I, w- I, I, would just as soon, um, I would just as soon read one or two um, for you, just so as you know. Uh, um, here is somebody called Lori, and she writes, uh, Rabbi Lappin, I understand from listening to your podcast that you read each one of your emails. That's so great, and it really made an impression on me for you to say so. It's true, I do. Uh, Don't answer them all personally. Um, I do read them all. So she goes on and says, I just wanted you to know that I'm so very thankful, and so on and so forth. Okay, great. Um, thanks, Laurie. Appreciate that. <clears throat> then uh, Bobby writes, apropos of the last week's show, Dear Rabbi Lappin, how can I be part of the road to recovery plan that you've spoken about? I know that we can collectively turn this country around, uh, and that, of course, is not such a simple question. And, um, uh, and so it is. And there are a few others. But anyway, bottom line, if you go to my website at www.rabbidaniellappin.com. You'll see a tab there, contact us, and you go ahead and do that, and uh, there's an opportunity right there to send a note. And uh, yes, I I will see it, and uh, I take uh, a great pleasure in reading all of those emails. Well, this would be the the first uh, show of uh, the year 2016, And so by now you uh, have celebrated Christmas, you've celebrated uh, New Year to whatever extent you do. I I don't I don't really uh, celebrate New Year. I've got to tell you, it's um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a nice it's a nice weekend. But uh, um, this notion that something of great significance has occurred, uh, the date has changed. Look, like like pretty much everyone else, I'm going to still be writing 2015 on my checks for the next few weeks. But uh, uh, it's it, it's okay. Christmas, uh, 25th of December, by the way, is uh, not only Christmas. It's also the birth date of, uh, I think some, many would say, uh, the greatest scientist of all time. Now, that's, of course, a very difficult title to reliably uh, bestow upon anybody. But uh, to the extent that he laid the foundations of uh, 
um, measuring and, uh, and, and applying the mathematics to gravitation and to motion, uh, people, I think, would, would, would not argue. Nobody would be indignant at the idea that Sir Isaac Newton was the greatest scientist who ever lived. He was born in England in uh, 1642, on the 25th of December. So that was his birthday as well, 25th of December, 1642. And uh, Isaac Newton was a deeply religious, Bible-believing Christian. Now, at the, uh, at the time, particularly at the time of his death, there was considerable unease among the establishment scientists of England and the Royal Academy of Science. And, uh, and, and many of these people were uneasy simply because his, his Christianity was a little unorthodox when, uh, when you think of the Church of England. And it was unorthodox in the sense that he sort of rejected Trinitarianism. He rejected the idea of... Uh, God being made up of three parts, and he was what, in those days, the word Unitarian meant. Today, of course, the Unitarian Church is something else entirely. But uh, back then, a Unitarian was somebody like Sir Isaac Newton, who believed that God is one, and, uh, and that's all there was to it. Um, he wrote about the same amount on religious matters as he did on physics and mathematics, and uh, he even wrote a treatise on the dimensions of the tabernacle and of the temple, uh, according to the Bible. He was a very religious guy. I mention that only because I, I'm going to be touching on it a little bit later in the show as well. But uh, to start with, I, uh, I've had a number of shows over the last few weeks that uh, are a little bit on the gloomy side, that, uh, that speak of the situation in which we find ourselves in, in the United States of America uh, in particular, and, and perhaps even the world in general, uh, an inability on the part of the Western democracies to uh, come to terms with Islam, uh, what it is and, uh, and where it's headed, and the divisions within Islam. And uh, these, these are, 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 are things that worry you as much as they worry me. Um, and I've, I've, I've been quite candid about this. I, I've not been um, wearing rose-colored spectacles and, and painting everything in Pollyanna-type colors, uh, Pollyanna pastels. No, I've been, uh, I've been fairly direct about uh, the, the reality of the situation. And, and I, I spoke about how Winston Churchill, when he took over from the feckless Chamberlain uh, in the first few months of World War II, uh, he gained considerable credibility by not whitewashing anything, by saying plainly just how very serious the situation really was. And I, I, think, I think we should also uh, recognize just how serious the situation is. But um, uh, then last week, the, the most recent one, I think that would have been uh, show number 25, I did that show on uh, the road to recovery. A, a blueprint by means of which the United States of America and all of us could actually get back to America's state of prominence and prosperity and prestige um, 
as we were, you know, in in the post-World War II era, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So some people uh, emailed me. To be specific, I got four emails from people saying, I got many more than that, but uh, the four emails I'm talking about, that in one way or another people said to me, look, uh, isn't it true that in every generation there's been gloomy naysayers, there have been those who, who've said things are bad and the sky's falling in, and it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's chicken little again, the sky's falling in. People have always said that. And so I, uh, I responded to them and I said, look, in the next show I will address that particular point. And so here we are. It is the next show. And um, I'm going to go back to 1952. In 1952, um, one of the great newspapers of the country, it's hard to believe, you know, because today it's long gone, but it was the Cleveland Press. And one of the reasons that the the paper uh, was as successful as it was and and, and as prominent as it was, first of all, you've got to remember that Cleveland was a much more important city back then than it is today. Uh, it was in the heart of the, the Midwest manufacturing belt. It, it was the center of industry. It was a commercial center. And, uh, and a lot of the industries that made Cleveland great are now gone. Uh, the city, Cleveland as a city, is, it's not Detroit by any means, but it's certainly deteriorated considerably. But back then, in the 50s, Cleveland was an important city. And the Cleveland Press was an important paper. Virtually everybody who, 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 who was anybody, anybody who was a taxpayer, anybody who was anybody in Cleveland society read the Cleveland Press. And this was all because of its remarkable editor, a guy called Louis B. Seltzer. And uh, he, he really worked his way up from, from the very bottom. He started in the copy room, I think. And... Um, and I, as far as I know, with not a whole lot of education, I'm pretty sure he didn't have an Ivy League education of any kind at all. But uh, nonetheless, he rose to prominence with a combination of business savvy, newspaper savvy. Um, he, uh, he, he groomed and mentored an entire generation of news people, whereas to, to this very day, uh, there are, are still newsmen I've met who speak glowingly of the fact that you know their guru, their mentor was Louis B. Seltzer, uh, the editor of the Cleveland Press. Anyway, so remember now, 1952, we're in the middle of the Korean War. And uh, you'll recall that um, a little while ago, a few weeks back, I explained in one of the shows, uh, I spoke about uh, how by uh, this period, 1950, uh, America had never lost a war. And uh, I even read to you uh, the speech given by a great World War II general uh, in which he's speaking to his soldiers on the eve of a big battle. He said, he said, America has never lost a war, never will. And of course, he was half right because up till that point, America had not lost a war. But uh, things were going to change, and uh, this obviously is part of what I speak about when I I speak about 
1960 approximately is the time where things started going downhill in America, um, one of the, the ways we measure this is militarily. And it's not an accident that uh, we were on the verge of embarking on a war that we would lose disgracefully, the Vietnam War. But we had already had our first war that we didn't win. And that's how things work, isn't it? You know, if, um, if somebody's academic record is deteriorating, he doesn't go from an A to an E. You know, he goes from an A, and then there's a B, and then there's a C, and he's, his record goes down. Well, from the nation that never lost a war, we didn't just immediately go to losing wars. We, first of all, went to a war that, uh, well, we didn't quite win, did we? And uh, it was not satisfactory. And that was the Forgotten War, the Korean War. And in 1952, we're in the middle of it. Now, one of the aspects of uh, not winning the Korean War was this idea that we wanted to have a limited objective. We wanted to attain something specific, but it was not victory. And, uh, you know, there were all kinds of political reasons for this. And, of course, uh, America is a country in which the military is headed by a civilian, um, not by the military. And it makes us very unique. And, and overall, that's probably the right way. It's probably the best way for things to work. But uh, it is the president who is the commander-in-chief of the military, <clears throat> not the head of the chiefs of staff. And so... Um, the uh, Korean War was, was disturbing to the civilian leadership in Washington, D.C. Um, because you had um, the Russians, and don't forget Stalin was, was sort of on his last legs, but he was there, and, uh, and he was a pretty aggressive guy. And uh, Stalin, um, after the victory of World War II, uh, he really felt that he was quite heroic and invincible. And then you had the communist Chinese. And uh, all of these guys were extremely um, involved in North Korea. <clears throat> uh, there have been all kinds of history books written, and I've, I've studied some of them, uh, about what could have been done or what should have been done. Everybody agrees it was unsatisfactory. It was not good. But this was the first time that America went in for this idea of limited objective, <clears throat> ridiculous rules of engagement, what you can. In other words, instead of giving the military the task of go and win, we expect total victory. We sort of held them back because we didn't want to antagonize the Russians. We didn't want to get Stalin mad. We didn't want to get the Chinese mad. Well, uh, bad guys, whether they're on the street corner or in the world of uh, geopolitics, can always tell when somebody is scared and they don't miss an opportunity to move in on the cowards. Let me tell you a little bit more, and particularly the uh, editorial of uh, Louis B. Seltzer, um, as when we come back and I continue explaining why it's not true to say that in every generation people have said, oh, it's terrible, things are bad. No. Things actually are worse now than they ever were before, and I'll explain just why coming back. 
ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, one of the things that help us understand how the world really works is a spirit of realism and an ability to acknowledge and recognize uh, when things are not good instead of fooling ourselves. Because if you fool yourself, and try to persuade yourself that things are good when they're not, and this is true on a national or on a personal level, uh, you are condemning yourself to, uh, at the very best, remain in that state or deteriorate further. You know, like if, you know, if, if things haven't gone well for you, recognize it, analyze it, try and find out why. You know, are, are you uh, in the business of making buggy whips while Henry Ford is building automobiles on a newfangled assembly line? Um, do you have to change jobs? I mean, if things aren't going well, recognize it, confront it, and then figure out how to deal with it and improve it. On a national level, the same thing. If you pretend that everything is wonderful, then you now accept the current status as normal and as the new threshold for further deterioration. That's not a way to go. And, uh, and so that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time responding to those of you, and there were four of you who wrote to me, so I'm assuming there are more, uh, who, who, who didn't take the, the time and trouble to write. And those of you who do want to write to me, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-A-P-I-N, rabbidaniellappin.com, and, uh, and just click on the tab that says Contact Us, and I'll be able to get, uh, your, uh, get your, um, your email. Anyways, uh, so some of you felt that times have always been, you know, they've always been old fogies who've spoken about how much better things were when I was a kid. Uh, you know, maybe yes, maybe no, that's not my point. My point, however, is that um, when people look back to difficult times, I think one of the most difficult times was 1952, when the Korean War was not going well. There was a disagreement between the, the military and Washington. Uh, the name Douglas MacArthur might mean something to you, perhaps the greatest general or one of the greatest generals we've ever had. I'd have to say other than General George Washington. But General Douglas MacArthur was at, uh, at literally at war with Washington, D.C. Uh, he'd had his ups and downs and was going to have more of those. It was, it was questionable whether he was going to try and run for president. Politically, things were a mess. Um, militarily, uh, things were not looking good in Vietnam. And it was shocking, you see, because, as I told you before, uh, we had never lost a war up till now. 
And so there they are in 1952, and Americans are shaking their heads saying, what is going on? This is ridiculous. How can we not be dealing with this? How can this be going on year after year? I mean, World War II was against Germany, and it was against uh, Italy, and it was against Japan. These are great, mighty nations. But this is a bunch of rice farmers in North Korea. Why are we taking such losses? Tens of thousands of deaths of Americans. Why? And uh, people were upset economically. The post-World War II miracle hadn't taken off yet, so we were still dealing with the costs of, of World We were still paying the costs of World War II uh, taxation and uh, World War II regulation. I mean, don't forget Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who uh, was no um, beacon of light, um, imposed tremendous regulatory restraints upon the American economy. And, uh, and he had just passed away. So uh, things were not good. Right? Things were not good. And as a matter of fact, um, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, uh, and I don't know if that's a name you, you will know about, but uh, he was the pastor of a church in New York. Um, it was hard to pick up a Reader's Digest magazine. Do you remember that? Of course not. Uh, but if you don't, you should know that this was a, a brilliant idea. The, uh, the, the people who created the Reader's Digest magazine went on to become uh, extremely wealthy and very, very successful. And the magazine was, I mean, you couldn't walk into a doctor's waiting room without seeing a Reader's Digest. Um, I, you know, I bet your parents or your grandparents probably subscribed to it and used to, it used to come to your house every month. Maybe you've still even got in an old family bookshelf um, Reader's Digest books. They used to do condensations of classics. Reader's Digest was an amazing publishing phenomenon. And Norman Vincent Peale uh, used to write uh, a piece fairly – excuse me. Gosh, sorry. That, uh, that came totally unexpectedly before I could even mute the mic. And uh, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale wrote – uh, very regularly for the Reader's Digest. Anyways, uh, he said in, in, uh, in that period, 1952, um, and I, I just want to – oh, by the way, he wrote – the book he wrote, that's what I wanted to tell you about. The book that Norman Vincent Peale wrote was called The Power of Positive Thinking, and uh, it became uh, the biggest bestseller up to then in modern American publishing, other than the Bible. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking. And, um, and you know, you've got you to think back to the, to the 50s and realize that today, if you walk up to a magazine stand, how many magazines are you going to see there? You can't even count them, right? You can't count them. I mean, if you happen to be interested in model railroading, there's like six magazines catering to you. If you're interested in, in quilting, as my wife is, there's like five different magazines. I sometimes like to, you know, pick up a magazine of quilting for her. And I, I, there's five of them. There's lots and lots of magazines. wasn't like that in 1952. And so a magazine like um, Reader's Digest was very, very significant. 
the number of books published wasn't like what like it is today. So uh, power of positive thinking. Oh yeah, yeah, very very much, very much. Uh, so sales like like anything. Anyways, uh, he wrote. Um, he at the time he said, 1952 said Norman Vincent Peale, the American people are so keyed up, it is impossible to put them to sleep even with a sermon. Which is, you know, a funny, a funny quip because anybody who preaches sermons in a church or, for that matter, a synagogue, um, is well aware of the phenomenon of people sliding down in the seats, in the pews, dropping their chins to their chests, and then with a look of rapt concentration, furrowing their brows, they shut their eyes, because uh, the secret of sleeping in either school or church is to maintain a look of concentration so as it doesn't look like you're sleeping, but it looks like you're shutting your eyes, the better to concentrate on what the teacher is saying, a skill, by the way, at which I excelled uh, through until my, in fact, all my teenage years. And so uh, Norman Vincent Peale said, uh, the American people are so keyed up, it is impossible to put them to sleep, even with a sermon. Meanwhile, uh, back to Cleveland, and the editor of the Cleveland Press, Louis B. Seltzer, wrote an editorial in 1952, uh, which went like this. What is wrong with us? It is in the air we breathe, the things we do, the things we say, our books, our papers, our theater, our movies, our radio and television, the way we behave, the interests we have, the values we fix. We have everything. We abound with all of the things that make us comfortable. We are, on the average, rich beyond the dreams of the kings of old. And yet, something is not there that should be something we once had. Something is not there that should be... How, how did he punctuate this? I'm sorry to make a mess of this sentence. Something is not there that should be. Oh, there, that's how it goes. Something is not there that should be. Something we once had. Are we our own worst enemies? Should we fear what is happening among us more than what is happening elsewhere? No one seems to know what to do to meet it, but everybody worries. And that's right. That's really what it was. And he spoke about uh, he spoke about the uh, uh, the the you know maybe I can actually find this. Uh, yes, there was there was uh, he addressed the this weird strange and I'm paraphrasing here this weird doctrine of limited engagement. People were very worried about the fact they'd never heard of this before. They'd never before in America heard of a situation where the military is not told to win the war, but they're, they're given other objectives. You know, go up to here, but not beyond. Do this, but don't do that. And, uh, and that tendency has only increased to the point where the rules of engagement given to U.S. military forces in Iraq and in Afghanistan I believe to uh, to have been deeply and profoundly immoral. 
you basically were endangering American lives, and you cost men. And I'm speaking. My, I'm addressing myself now to uh, the um, administration in Washington D.C. You endangered many American lives. You cost many American lives at the risk of, heaven forbid, civilian lives on the other side. Look, American government, your priority is protecting Americans, not humanity. Your job is to keep alive and healthy Americans, not all human beings, Americans. You're not God. You're the government. You're the American government. You work for us. And yet, and that's why I regard these rules of engagement as so immoral, because they protected Muslim lives in Iraq and Afghanistan and cost American lives. Again, they would never have thought of such a thing during the Korean War, but they put us on the downhill trajectory. We set foot on the slippery slope coated with coconut oil down which we were inevitably going to slide that took us from the days where Americans used to win wars to the days where Americans lose them. And yes, uh, I do think we lost the war in Iraq. We spent blood and money and got nothing for it. I think you could call that a loss. Um, the war in Afghanistan, same thing. I wish it weren't so. And it's certainly not the fault of the, the brave people in uniform, but it is the fault of civilian leadership. And it was civilian leadership that cost Vietnam and that caused the uh, chaos in Korea. Uh, so I'm, I'm showing you that things were certainly not good back in the days of the Korean War. They certainly weren't good. No question about it. But you see, you can't simply say, well, there were people who recognized they weren't good then. There's people who think it's not good now. It's always like that. Things change. It's always like that. But it isn't, you see, because there is such a thing as objective reality. There is such a thing as metrics, which means looking at the numbers, because, yes, it's true. Numbers don't lie. People try and lie with numbers, using statistics and choosing very carefully. Of course, people lie with numbers, but numbers themselves do not lie. Let's uh, pause for just a second, and uh, as soon as we come back, let me tell you some of the numbers that distinguish between the 1950s and 2015. In fact, I'll tell you the difference between numbers of just uh, 10 years, 2005 and 2015. And you will see that it makes no sense to say, oh, it's always been, there have always been people who've said times are bad. That's just how it is. No. Uh, things are objectively worse now than they've ever been before in American history. I'll explain just how. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Sexton. I'll have this argument with anyone all day long. I'm not saying you can't enjoy college sports and watch it and everything else. I'm talking about from an administrative point of view, what the universities focus on. Sports are out of control. That's what I'm saying. And you see, I always digress into this because it bothers me almost as much as the giant pothole in front of my apartment years ago in New York that the city of New York refused to fill. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we are, back again, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, thank you so much for being with us. As you can hear, uh, my uh, my voice is, is not fully back to normal. <clears throat> but uh, it soon will be. Um, why is it that things are measurably worse now in America than they were in, in other bad times. And, and certainly one of the bad times was 1950, <clears throat> 1952, no question about it. <clears throat> but why, why worse now? Well, uh, for one thing, my friends, for one thing, the national debt. Even with World War II, and all the borrowing and the bonds that had to be issued, even with all of that, it was still a shock when by 2004, the national debt had risen to $7 trillion. $7 million, million. Uh, the, the numbers are so immense that uh, it's, if you haven't played games of sort of trying to visualize what a trillion dollars is, what a billion is, what a million is, uh, you can't even comprehend how big that number is. <clears throat> but by 2004, that's how big it was. So, yes, uh, so back in 1952, uh, looking at a national debt uh, of perhaps um, somewhere around about uh, $250 billion. $250 billion was the national debt. Now, the national debt had, had risen during World War II, uh, and it, it got high by 1946, right? The war is over, and it's being paid off. And it plummeted. The national debt plummeted way down, way down. And, uh, and it stayed way down for, for quite a while. But uh, by two, th and, you know, it, it climbed a little bit, but it really began its climb seriously um, more, more recently, uh, 70s, 80s. Anyways, by 2005, 2004, I should say, it had got to be $7 trillion. $7 trillion. Now, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to put these figures into perspective for you in a moment, just so you realize what this means. Um, in the 11 years from 2004 to 2015, to where we are now, 
it went, the national debt went from 7 trillion to just about 20 trillion. There have been attempts uh, by the government to camouflage a little bit, to sort of fudge the figures a little bit because the administration, I think, recognizes that 20 trillion is kind of a, uh, a landmark figure and they've sort of been trying to keep it in the 19 range. But uh, there's evidence that there's fudging going on there and that uh, it'll turn out to be a very definite 20 trillion in reality. So um, to, do, to go now from 1952 till now, we went from $250 billion to $20 trillion. To just help you <laughs> with the arithmetic there, uh, that's a growth of 80 times. So from 1952 until now, 2015, the national debt has grown by a factor of 80. It's 80 times bigger now than it was then. Now, do you think our population is 80 times bigger than it was then? No. Do you think we're 80 times more productive than we were then? No. And so what does this boil down to? Well, it boils down to very bad news. And that's why I'm saying you can't compare things in 1952 with things in 2015. You cannot compare a national debt of uh, back then, 1952, um, of $200 billion, not nowhere near a trillion yet. You can't compare that with $20 trillion. particularly because back then, as a proportion of gross domestic product, it was manageable. You'd say to yourself, well, you know, it's not that much of a – it was, it was higher than it should have been, no question, but – to some extent, that was the World War II and the, Vietnam and the Korean War. But um, at least it was a fraction of gross domestic product. Now, now our national debt is higher than our gross domestic product. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, put in these terms, maybe this will uh, help. I know this helped me very much as, as I was – grappling with trying to wrap myself around this. Um, if it was decided that the national debt had to be paid off, in, 19, in 2004, only 11 years ago, I'm not going back to 2015 because that will just be too depressing. It was easy then. We could have solved it easily. But right now, if uh, in 2004, I'm sorry, 11 years ago, if we wanted to pay off the national debt, each – Every single one of you, and I'm assuming you're all tax-paying, productive Americans who, who do something with their lives, each one of you would have been on the hook for about $70,000. This was 11 years ago. But we did not pay it off. We continued the, the crazy borrowing, which intensified. You'll remember that um, uh, uh, Senator Obama – voted against raising the debt ceiling while President Bush was president because he said it was reckless and irresponsible spending. <laughs> um, that was when the national debt was a less than half of what it is now. And 
when Obama, uh, Senator Obama became President Obama, the uh, objections to a growing national debt vanished. It was fine. And so now, if today's $20 trillion national debt were to be paid off, each one of us would be on the hook for $150,000. $150,000. So you say, okay, fine. Let's not pay it off all at once because none of us have 150000 in cash sitting around doing nothing. So how, in how long would you like to pay it off? 15 years? Well, that's an extra $10,000 a year of tax. But it's even worse because if we're only paying it off in 15 years, we won't have paid it off at that rate because it'll be much more. In 15 years, the interest payments will have increased it substantially, and I, I haven't done the arithmetic. But if I'd say ballpark, it will have grown from 20 million to 25 million with no other borrowing, just the interest. I'm sure that that's a conservative guess. In 15 years, easy, probably worse. And so we've got for ourselves a, a tough situation. Without question, a very tough situation. The national debt in 1952, when everyone said, oh, what a bad time that was, what a bad time. The national debt could have been paid off. Could have been paid off back then. It would have been uh, a very small amount, a really small amount on everybody's tax. How much? About $1,000. If everybody would have paid $1,000 in 1952, that would have ended the national debt. But now, everyone has to pay not $1,000, but $150,000. It's a different story. So you say, well, you know, what's the problem? Why is this a difficulty? Uh, my life is continuing as normal. Well, it isn't really, because you're comparing it to last year. And the trouble is, we're, we're creatures of short memory, and we're creatures with almost no intergenerational memory. And so most of us don't realize how much easier making a living was 40 years ago. And it really was. Unless, unless you were a, you know, unless you're now a high-tech titan or a hedge fund manager. But for most ordinary Americans, it's a lot harder to make a living today. And the, uh, the evidence, by the way, is something which I've told you before, and I think it's really important to remember, which is that uh, in 1960, American families lived an enviable middle-class lifestyle on the income of only one wage earner, right? Moms at home were the norm back then. Dad went to work. And how did they live? Pretty darn well. Two cars, suburban home, pretty well on one salary. Can you see anybody living that well on one salary today? No, you can't, and you're right. It's not possible. Uh, standard of living has gone down. So you ask me, what's so terrible about a massive national debt? Well, the answer is that um, it's the same answer as what's so terrible about you having higher and higher credit card debt every year. And you say, well, you know, everything seems fine. Well, yes, but what's happening is that a greater portion of your annual income or your monthly income, if you like, is going on interest every single year. 
as time goes by, more and more of your income has to go to pay the interest. Now, you could borrow from one credit card to pay off the interest on another, but you know, you're only you're only postponing the day of reckoning, right? It's not it's not changing anything. In the final analysis, you can see that you get to a point where you can no longer pay your home mortgage because you're spending so much money on the interest on your credit cards that you don't have enough left over to pay the mortgage. So you have to sell your house and you have to move into an apartment where your rent payment is a lot less than the mortgage payment you were making. Well, that buys you a little time, doesn't it? But uh, you're still borrowing. And so pretty soon, you're in a bad situation, even with your rental apartment, aren't you? It's a bad, bad situation. Well, it's no different, my friends, with a nation. Think about it. Have you noticed that in badly run cities in America, um, think of Detroit, today you can think of Cleveland, Newark, Baltimore, and I'm thinking of cities primarily that are run by democratic administrations that have been run by democratic administrations for many years. What do you notice first and foremost about those cities? Come on, you, you've got to see it. Oh, New York, by the way. New York's uh, the best example of all. I was just in New York this week, and uh, I commented on it. And, you know, for folks who live in New York, they're so used to it. Folks who live in Newark and Detroit and Baltimore, they're so used to it, they don't pay attention. But you know what you notice first and foremost? You notice the rotten condition of the streets. There are potholes that would swallow up a small European import car. Well, okay, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. But we're talking about, do you know how it beats up cars? You drive on the Belt Parkway in New York or you drive in Baltimore or Detroit or Newark or, uh, or Cleveland or, or a few other cities like that around the country that have been democratically run for, for years and years and years. No maintenance on the streets. The streets are in horrible condition. Another thing you'll notice, the traffic lights aren't synchronized. You know why? Because it costs money to get the software to synchronize traffic lights. So they can't do it. Same way they don't have money to fix the streets. Why? Because democratic administrations spend and spend and spend, and they borrow to cover their spending, and they issue city bonds, and then they have to pay the interest on those bonds. And so guess what doesn't get done? The streets don't get fixed. The traffic lights don't get synchronized. And so it is more and more and more things that are invisible, things that the current city council can get away with. You know, um, they'll say people will complain about the condition of the streets and they'll say, well, we'll we need to uh, put a city tax of a, another cent on so we can fix the streets. And people say, well, that sounds reasonable. You've got to fix the streets. It doesn't go to fix the streets. It goes to pay interest because they're borrowing money because they are spending and spending and spending. How does this translate to a national level? Well, quite easily, as I'll explain as soon as we get back in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Jay Severin. I'm frightened by several things, but the only thing strictly political that frightens me, maybe cultural too, is that there are enough people that actually believe this conspiracy scenario that it's worth mentioning. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, this is, I do believe, the 26th episode, episode number 26. And uh, moving along with uh, my explanation for why it is that, (laughs) gosh, for why it is that things are worse than they've been in previous years, that that those people who say, oh, there's always been times where we've had difficult times, there's always been times where people have said, oh, this is terrible, Um, those people are wrong. Because things are objectively and measurably worse than at any previous time in a number of different uh, metrics. For instance, there's never been a time in American history where a greater proportion of Americans live on a government check than today. Never before. And that's a problem. Government was never meant to be this big. Government was never meant to be the recourse of choice for so many citizens. And it's a massive problem because once you have a situation, and we're just at that point now, the tipping point, where more Americans receive a government check than do not, you've basically got a perpetuated form of government because if you receive a government check, why on earth would you vote against that government that's paying you? The next government who comes in might cut your payments. And uh, that's where we're at. That's serious. In other words, in 1952, yes, it was tough times, and there was a malaise. And Louis B. Seltzer of the Cleveland Press felt that things were not right in the country. And, and he, was, he was correct about that. But there was nowhere near the number of Americans, the percentage of Americans getting a government check, and... That means that elections used to mean something. Now they don't, because it becomes increasingly difficult to dislodge a government that is the government of payout, that is the government of gimme, that is the government of uh, largesse and goodness and charity and beneficence. That's right. And uh, it is not an accident that uh, Ted Kennedy and the other Democrats who pushed through the 1965 Immigration Reform Act modified that immigration law to favor people that they felt were more likely to become government dependents. I know this sounds evil. It was evil. (laughs) What do you think? Ted Kennedy was a freedom-loving, patriotic American? No, he wasn't. Not at all. And uh, the damage that he and his friends did was incalculable. No question about it that uh, the Democratic Party recognizes that the more people 
that can be put on government payroll in one way or another, the more certain it is that the Democrats will be in power forever. It'll become essentially a one-party country. I know this sounds horrible and terrible, but that's where we're at. And that's why I say this is not something that can just continue. The, um, the national debt, and I, I'll move off that now. I've spent enough time on, on the economic side of it. But uh, I just want you to think about this and share with friends and those you talk to, share that we're close to the end. Uh, and people, oh, what do you mean? We'll just borrow more. What does it matter? Well, uh, it matters in, in, in two ways, and, and these are the only two ways. One is that the, uh, the tax burden on those diminishing numbers of productive Americans is going to have to increase and increase and increase beyond all endurance till we become slaves of the state uh, in an attempt futilely to pay off that interest bill on the national debt. Uh, another alternative or, or, part of, or, or, or something that could be done instead of or together with is massive inflation because if that debt is paid off with inflated dollars, well, then it can be paid off, right? Well, think about what that does to us. It's just, an, it's just another way of imposing a hideously confiscatory rate of taxation on you. If the government inflates your dollars... It's just another way of taking them. So that's not helping. And so that's why it is that it's, 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 it's completely unrealistic, it's immature and childish to say, oh, well, you know, it'll just carry on the way it has. No, because there is a bill to be paid sooner or later. Look, let me give you another example of this. Anybody who follows the, the, uh, the story particularly of the, uh, the 20th century. And um, you watch our handling of the Islamic world. And you watch how Bill Clinton, in a determined effort to indoctrinate the country into believing that everything is wonderful, everything is fantastic, you've got nothing to worry about. Um, he uh, downplayed the danger of uh, Islam. You know that Bill Clinton had the option of capturing bin Laden in Somalia, turned it down, didn't want him. He didn't want anything to make the party go away. He didn't want anything that would have people think things aren't terrific. And again, you think about it, the, uh, the, the natural tendency of any immoral president is to do just that. I think we're, we've got a lot of that going on right now. Everything is wonderful. Everything is fine. And if there are any indications that things are not wonderful and fine, well, punish the messenger. And we've seen this again and again with the current administration. Well, we used to have that with the Clinton administration as well. And so, my friends, um, for, for people who understand Islam, and if you don't think it um, too obnoxious, I will... Um, immodestly include myself in that number. And if you, uh, if you think that that is unreasonable of me, then I would urge you to go to my website, go to the store, and read up about a product called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. 
um, invest in a copy of that, and uh, after you've studied it, you too will know a great deal about Islam, and better than that, uh, you might forgive me for my boast that I, I know a thing or two about Islam. You might see that, uh, in fact, um, I really do. And I, I tell you this only because uh, I, I, I want to encourage you to study it, not necessarily from me, uh, Bernard Lewis, the greatest expert on Islam. He's a very elderly man today living in Philadelphia, a wonderful guy, uh, but he really gets it. He knows, by the way, a whole lot more than me. I'm, I'm a student of his, but uh, I sit at his feet. But even I know more than the average person about Islam, and even I can tell you that 9-11 was not out of the blue. 9-11 was a bill coming due. Do you follow what I'm saying? You can put off pain for only so long before you hit a major crisis. And that was what was happening. For many, many years, we were putting off the pain of dealing with Islam. And every time they hit us, we backed off, whether it was the marine barracks in the Middle East or whether it was the coal, whatever it was, or the first bombing of the World Trade Center, um, or for that matter, the, uh, the bringing down of TWA Flight 800 out of Kennedy Airport in the, during the Clinton presidency. Yes, I, uh, let me tell you something. Uh, fuel tanks on Boeing 747s do not just explode. But, um, but Bill Clinton, and I mean, I think you all understand the power of a presidency. And, uh, and, and I think you all understand and there's literature on this. In, in Shakespearean plays, this, this theme is picked up a lot, which is that the king doesn't even have to explicitly say, do this. He's just got to indicate kind of what he wants happening, what he, what he wants to see. And they're eager beavers who, who will run there to do his will. And it's going to be impossible. You can't even tie it to him afterwards. Uh, right now, the... Um, uh, there is um, a scandal coming out about the fact that the White House was getting information about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's conversations with members of the United States Congress. And, um, and the White House says, look, we didn't tell the NSA to pass along information to us. We didn't tell them. And sure enough, I think it'll be very difficult, if not impossible, to prove but this was while the president was determined to pull off this um, mythological and uh, um, foolish excuse for a deal with Iran, this hoax of a deal. And Netanyahu was ringing the alarm bell like crazy, saying, you don't understand. You don't understand what you people are giving away here. And he was coming to the United States, and a lot of people got upset because he, he spoke about it over here, and he spoke to Congress. Uh, the, the president is, is, uh, is, is a petty man and an arrogant man, and he gets very, very upset when people defy him in any way whatsoever. And so, yeah, I'm quite sure that the Obama White House did not have to say to the National Security Agency, we would like to have copies of the communication between Netanyahu and members of Congress, 
because the last thing you want in America, if you're the president, is the word to get out that you've been spying on members of Congress. This would be a constitutional violation of, of a very severe degree. So, um, so sure enough, you probably will find zero paper trail where the administration said to the NSA, give us copies of all the communication between a foreign prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and members of the United States Congress. But, my friends, that's exactly what the NSA did. They did not give the president copies of correspondence of the president of Brazil or the president of Poland. No. While this fuss was going on about uh, the deal with Iran and Netanyahu was the only world leader who was screaming at the top of his lungs, don't do it. Uh, somehow and mysteriously, the president got copies of the communications Netanyahu had with members of Congress. There's going to be a stink about it. Members of Congress deeply resent being spied on, but uh, <clears throat> it'll pass by as everything else does. And uh, meanwhile, nothing at all will happen on that front. Um, so it is that um, when it came to the investigation of TWA Flight 800, uh, the investigation organizations, the National Air Transport Safety Board and, and, uh, and the FAA, all of these organizations are part of the administration. They're under the executive branch. Do you really think that they didn't know that there were subtle messages from the administration saying this has to be an accident, not terrorism? And uh, while I'm not a conspiracy nut, I don't see uh, conspiracies under every bed, I have no doubt whatsoever that TWA Flight 800 was, uh, had Muslim fingerprints on it. I also don't doubt for a moment that the Oklahoma City bombing had Muslim fingerprints on it, particularly Iraqis, formerly members of the Republican Guard. I don't doubt that for a minute. It's something I know a great deal about. And I'm absolutely sure that during the Clinton presidency, there were at least two and maybe more major acts of Islamic uh, terror against the United States, Oklahoma City and TWA 800. And uh, the word from the administration, and you won't find a paper trail, but you don't have to because everybody understood, everybody knew what the president wanted, which was don't rock the boat. Don't spoil the party. There's no problem. And nothing that can't be handled by the police. There are crimes, there are police actions, but terror, foreign attack, absolutely not. And so as each of these things happened, and this started before the Clinton presidency, as each of these things, each time the Muslim world reached out a toe and dipped it into the water to see whether the West was capable of responding, they got a very reassuring message. Carry on. Go ahead. Nothing to worry about. And nothing to worry about here either, because although we're stopping for a quick break, I will be back in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Census Bureau says the number of women earning more than their husband has gone up. It has gone up. Women are finally pulling their weight. Well, more are making more than their husband. Damn it, I wish they'd hurry up and pull their weight. No, this is just the continuing narrative that women don't get paid enough. Don't get paid as much as men. I mean, 77%. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everyone. Back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And a quick reminder here, which is I love getting emails from you. Please go ahead and, um, and I mean, gosh, maybe you just want to wish me a happy new year. I accept that as well. That's good. Even though uh, I don't wish people happy new year because I think happiness is the responsibility of each and every one of us, right? Because when you wish somebody, you may be secular in nature, but what you really are saying is I pray that God grants you a happy new year. Well, I don't think our happiness is God's responsibility. It's our responsibility. We have to be happy. Um, but what we can do is wish one another a healthy New Year. We can wish one another a prosperous 2016. Absolutely. And I wish that very much for all of you. And uh, you might want to wish me that. Go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, R-A-B-B-I. Daniel is D-A-N-I-E-L. And Lapin, L-A-P-I-N, uh, just like the French for rabbit. And um, go to the contact us. Go ahead, shoot me an email. And uh, also, you want to make sure that you are a subscriber of our free weekly email called Thought Tools. Okay, back to the topic. So, uh, what am I? Uh, what am I explaining? I'm explaining that 9/11 was not a bolt out of the blue. There were all kinds of signals along the way that a wise American government would have said, we need to act on this. These are people who have been snapping at our heels since the 18th century. Have you ever heard of the Barbary pirates? Just read, read the history books of the period. Read about, they used to be called Mohammedans. Um, read about their treatment of people, their constant attacks on the West. This goes back to the 700s. This goes back to the time of Muhammad himself, for heaven's sake. Uh, these are warlike people, and uh, they are people who view the infidel, non-Muslims, with a mixture of disdain, contempt, brutality, and cruelty. So um, any wise government would have slapped that hand that reached out long ago long ago. You know how the solution to the Barbary pirates came about. Only, only through vigorous military action. And that solved it for a good long period of time. But um, we didn't do that. Look, think about raising a child for a moment. And I hope you're not one of these uh, uh, liberal, modern parents who believe that children should be allowed to do whatever they want to do. Because if you are, even you will get your 9-11. Even you will get the, to the point where you'll say, you know what, we can't, we can't handle these kids anymore. We've raised monsters. And even you will have to adopt a total change in policy. But let me tell you something. When you are forced to fight, 
your situation is ever so much worse than when you could have fought at your choice of time and place. And so as a child begins to grow, and I, my wife and I, we never saw it as the terrible twos. <laughs> We, 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 we loved them at that age. Oh, we love them at every age. But they, they were so cute at that age. But here's the thing. It's at that age that they start testing the boundaries. And whatever it is, they start testing the boundaries. Well, let me tell you something. Um, we, we are blessed. We've got seven wonderful kids. They are so close. I mean, my wife and I are deeply moved that to, to this point, um, you know, if they have a weekend off, if they have time, they'd rather come along and, and be together with the family than anything else. You know, you could offer them a vacation weekend somewhere, but if they could come home for the weekend and spend it with family, that's what they would rather. I mean, that, I'm, I'm trying to explain how close the family is. And, um, and this is, and it, it not only wasn't handicapped or hindered, but it was assisted by the fact that when they were little, Boundaries were really clear. And when you violated the boundary, there was a consequence. And back in those days, you know, you're talking about little kids when kids are little. The, the, the violation of boundaries are small and the consequences are small. But they're learning the boundaries. They're learning the principles. They're learning that parents have to be obeyed. Okay? And so it's the same with governments. When uh, there was the constant little reach-outs, constant little testings, just like a little kid does. Uh, we ignored it. We retreated. We left it. And so somebody like Bernard Lewis um, would have said and did say, you're heading for 9-11. Now, he didn't know the details, but you're heading for a big one. There's no question about it. Because when you don't pay the bills along the way, when you don't deal with the pain along the way, it just gets bigger and bigger. All right? It's, think of a little toothache. You ignore a little toothache. It's a really bad idea because it's getting worse and worse. And then when you finally have no choice, it's a big deal. And that's what we did with 9-11. We did nothing. We did nothing. We did nothing. Even the bombing of the World Trade Center. Oh, it's, it's not terrorism. No, it's not. It's just, okay. Well, then came 9-11. That was a big one. And is that the end of it? I pray so, but I don't think so. And that's another reason why things are much worse now than in 1952. They are. And, and by the way, I mean, all of this is not meant to put you in a downer mood for 2016. Far from it. Um, my point is that once we realize the reality, it's so much easier to get things right than it is when people aren't willing to even recognize the reality. So we really can get ahead of the game and put ourselves on the road to recovery once we realize that things are very, very bad. And so uh, uh, similarly, you, you know, the idea of ignoring the national debt, it gets bigger and bigger, and we just borrow more and more and more. It's like a toothache, or it's like Islam and 9-11. Uh, you're heading for a problem. Oh, and by the way, World War II, another case in point. From, from 1930 at the latest, even into the 20s, there were indications that, um, <clears throat> that steps should be taken by the Western democracies. 
But say what you like. They were burnt out by World War One. Say what you like. But it, w it wasn't any of those things. The bottom line is it was the predominance of liberalism that had taken hold of the thinking in the United Kingdom. And, uh, and they just weren't willing to do what had to be done with, with the rising Germany. And Hitler then takes the Rhineland, violates the Treaty of Versailles, recaptures, and peacefully without a shot being fired, uh, subsequent to World War II, we know that had the French merely mobilized, Hitler would have withdrawn and there wouldn't have been a World War II. My point, my friends, is again, if you don't deal with what has to be dealt with at the time it should be dealt with, you will face your own 9-11. In the case of World War II, it was Hitler's invasion of Poland and a horrible, horrible world war from which the world has never really fully recovered yet. And uh, in the case of ignoring Islamic transgression, it was 9-11. And in the occasion and in the event of uh, ignoring the growing national debt and the increasing proportion of gross domestic product that has to go to pay the interest on the national debt, it's heading to something not good. And in the same way that no one could tell exactly what the attack of 9-11 was going to be or exactly when it was going to be, um, people knew it was going to be bad. And in the same way, you know as well as I do that if there is not a substantial and major turnaround economically, and we're not just talking about a President Reagan coming in after a President Carter, because it wasn't that bad in 1980. Oh, it was bad. I mean, the late 70s, there was inflation. There were all kinds of problems, but it was doable. It could still be solved. This is a much more serious uh, situation. What is the... Uh, and? So, okay, so it's, yes, it's, it's militarily, uh, it's monetarily, but it's, it's not just that. It's also, unfortunately, in the world of science, the climate obsession. Okay, right now, the obsession with climate suits the president very well indeed. It's, it's most comfortable for him because he would much rather talk about the climate than about Islam or the economy. The fact that most of us are form far more worried about Islam and the economy than we are about the climate is neither here nor there because the president wields enormous power. Uh, the media, eager to curry favor, are happy to play along. And what's more, when your commitment ideologically is to liberalism, then it is no longer to science. And so you are willing to buy into popular trends, and uh, climate change is a popular trend. Why? What's so wonderful about climate change? Well, yes, it does serve to distract an uneasy electorate from the real problems at which this administration has been an abject failure, and it allows the president to go to Paris and wave a flag, and oh, yes, we've only got one planet, and we're fixing it. We're doing something about it. Uh, yes, we are shackling the American economy, destroying American industry, and weakening our economic position even further. But the borrowing continues unabated. And so... Uh, 
It serves that purpose. Um, and again, folks, I'm not going to devote uh, time on this show to anything you can research or do for yourselves. I, I don't want to waste your time. And uh, some of you already know this. Some of you don't. Those of you who know it are happy. Those of you who don't can go and research it. But it's really not hard. With a few minutes on the Internet, it's really not hard to discover really telling red flags. Uh, the temperature has not increased over the last 20 years, but that wasn't in any way predicted by the climate models on which all of American policy is based. What's more, the climate models on which it's based were uh, revealed temperature changes that in reality haven't reached even half the predictions. In other words, the whole model, the whole computer model is deeply flawed. Well, you might say, well, Rabbi Lappin, why on earth would, would, would they make this stuff up? They must have had evidence that climate change was happening. Why would they make it up? And the answer is that uh, we are human beings. We all have our own biases. We have our tendencies. We have our prejudices. We're human beings. We're not computers. We're not machines. You know, you probably think your baby that was just born uh, a week ago, maybe your grandbaby, you probably think that that's like objectively a better-looking baby than mine. But it isn't. Everyone knows mine is better-looking than yours, right? <laughs> We're human beings. We have desires, we have convictions, we have prejudices, and we're not necessarily always driven by facts. <laughs> we're just not like that. And so uh, why does climate change appeal to us? I'll tell you why. Coming right back. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. The cost was estimated somewhere between $600 billion and $1.2 trillion. And you know we'll go over budget. Oh, you know. That'd be like $97 no. trillion. Dollars. In 800 stories, who's going to buy all that space? Does Japan really need an 800-story building? I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt anybody does. No. You know who gets that done? Donald Trump. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, when I start a segment and thank you for listening, please don't think that that is a merely a formality. Uh, please don't think that it is just an automatic part of my patter. Uh, I really am very grateful to you for, for listening. I really am. And uh, I, I hate to confess it, but... Uh, I'm obsessive about numbers, and I constantly watch to see how many people are downloading the show, how many people are listening, how many people are subscribing. I really do. And uh, it's not just because of uh, a stroke to the ego that so many people are listening, and, and, and we do have very, very high numbers. <coughs> uh, it's not just that, but um, it's, it's the sense that I'm actually in communication with people. I'm actually in conversation. Um, think about it. It would be if I knew with for a certainty that nobody was listening, 
there's no way. You couldn't, I don't think you could pay me enough to talk into a microphone for an hour and a half. I don't think you could do it. That's hard work. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's not simple. You know, you, you, you've got to prepare. You should prepare a lot. I, I, I sometimes fail to prepare as much as I should do, but I always prepare to some extent, and, um, and, and, and then I try. Again, I'm very focused on delivering value, and at least to the best of my ability. I sometimes fail to reach my own standards, I'll tell you that, and that's depressing. But, uh, but knowing that you are listening makes it so easy. It's in, in a sense, it's, uh, it's a conversation, and uh, I appreciate it. And that's one of the reasons I constantly cajole you to email me at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, is because that's further reassurance to me that you are listening, and that's further encouragement to me uh, to be doing what I do. So when I say thank you for listening, you can know that I really do mean it. Um, okay, so uh, why on earth? Would people fudge the numbers? Why would people want there to be global warming? <clears throat> well, uh, there are three main reasons. Uh, reason number one is people love having a problem they can solve. People, uh, reason number two is a deep desire for, for sacrifice. Reason number three is, uh, the, um, uh, it is the inevitable outcome of secularism. I'll explain each one quickly. <clears throat> First of all, um, people love having a solution to a problem. You know how it is that um, when you're overwhelmed by too much to do, whether it's around the house or whether it's in chores or whether it's at work, uh, the, the smartest thing to do is, and by the way, it can be very painful sometimes, sit down and make a list of everything you've got to do. It's painful sometimes because um, it sort of forces you to confront limitations, which as a human being created an image of God, we hate limits because deep inside of us, we want to be like God. We want to be limitless and omnipotent and omnipresent. And so this list of, of tasks that we haven't got to is frustrating to us. And, and, and that's why it's not everybody finds it easy to just sit down and make a list of everything you've got to do. But you go ahead and do that and you feel good when you've done it. And then when you start scratching out each one you accomplish, you feel great. That same feeling is massaged when we hear of a problem called global warming. You'll remember global warming before climate change. And, um, and then we think, oh, is this really a problem? But wait, here's the solution. You've just got to use less carbon, and you've got to pay a little extra for this and a little off that there and buy a carbon offset over here, and you feel good about it. And, and so you're solving it. My goodness, how good it is. Here's at least one problem we're taking care of. And uh, <clears throat> government likes it for the same reason. It also likes it because it uh, centralizes more power in the government. It, it grants more regulatory authority to government. It grants more taxation authority to government because this is a massive big problem, right? And it's not a problem you can solve yourself. You can only solve in collaboration with government. And it's a problem ultimately that lots of governments are going to have to get together. So this reinforces your desire to believe in the intrinsic goodness of the United Nations. So it, it, it satisfies all of those things. It's, it's, uh, it's a feel-good type of uh, thing. That's reason number one. Reason number two, and, and I'm doing these quickly because I want to go through them uh, quickly and not be stalled on them, but, uh, but we can always go back to them if you want me to. But for now, reason number two is desire for sacrifice. And, and here it is that 
the good Lord created us with physical needs and spiritual needs. Among our physical needs are uh, water, food, oxygen. Those are the most uh, pressing of the physical needs. Uh, without them, we die. But the good Lord also built in equally compelling spiritual needs, my friends. And of those spiritual needs, one of the most powerful is the need to sacrifice. The need to feel pious about oneself by sacrificing. The need to express virtue through sacrifice. Now, there are a number of different ways that this can be accomplished. Uh, one way in the biblical days, people would take their cows and sheep and bring them to the temple and sacrifice them. And that fulfilled a deep spiritual need that God built into us. Uh, in this day and age, one of the ways of doing it is by raising children, raising a family. Because we automatically sacrifice for our kids. We do. And that makes us feel good. It fills a spiritual need. It's one of the reasons that people have children. Because you stop to think about it, you say, you know, is this, do I really want this? Yes, you really do. Because you want somebody to whom you can constantly give and sacrifice for. And uh, some people do it by uh, um, giving generously, philanthropically to their church, to charities. That's sacrificing. It's money you can't spend on yourself. You're giving to someone else. It's a, it fulfills a need. It's a good thing. We feel good about it, and we are right to feel good about it. And, uh, and uh, climate change is fantastic because for secular people, many of whom choose not to have families, uh, many of whom do not give charity, yes, that's true. Religious people give vastly more than secular people. So, you know, don't get your knickers in a knot when you hear me say that secular people are non-charitable. That is true. They are. On average, in general, um, secular people give far, 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 far less charity than religious people do. And, uh, and so what they've got is climate change. And so they feel very virtuous buying a silly little battery on wheels called an electric car. They feel really good about that, regardless of the fact that uh, it doesn't really, uh, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that uh, for now, but uh, suffice it to say that um, at the moment with technology where it is, with uh, gas prices where they are, um, spending all that money on an electric car is just plain stupid. Uh, even hybrid cars, it's, this, this is all to satisfy the customer's need for sacrifice, to feel virtuous and to buy green products. People pay more for green products. How stupid can people be? No, Lappin, it's not stupidity. It's religion. It's a need to sacrifice. And if you say to people, hey, do you realize that you're paying much more because you're buying products that are packaged with certification of green environmental packaging? They say, yeah, of course I know more. It's the right thing to do. They sound like religious fundamentalists, and they are, because environmentalism and climate change has much more to do with religion than it has to do with science. And, um, and the third reason is, um, the second reason for uh, obsession with climate change is the desire to sacrifice, and the third reason is that 
um, it's an inevitable consequence. You see, there are only two ways of looking at our presence on this planet. Either we're here because God created us in his image and put us here, or we are here because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm became plumbers and ballerinas. That's the only two, uh, those are the only two options. And if we take option one, then we are created in the image of God. We have the capacity to create like God does. And above all, we live in a world in which our Father in heaven takes care of us. We live in a world of abundance. Everything is okay in the long term. Overall, in terms of the world, God is in charge. Don't worry. Go along and have some pancakes while you're driving a V8 5.7 liter Hemi engine car. Go ahead. It's fine. Don't feel guilty for any reason at all. It's silly. You're just fine. But if, on the other hand, you believe that we're here because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution that changed um, single cell, uh, that first of all, that changed methane gas into single cell creatures and single cell creatures into racehorses, uh, then that means that we are just another breed of racehorse. We're just another form of planetary existence. And above all, it means that we live in a world of shortage. Because if we live in only a material world, only a physical world, no spiritual, well, physical stuff runs out, it expires, it dies. And so, sure enough, a physical world with no God is a world ultimately of shortage. It's a world of problems. And responsible animals, that's you and me, have to do something about those problems, surely. That the problems are there is unarguable. Of course the sun is going to fade away and we're all going to die of cold. Well, I guess we don't have to worry about that this week. This week we better worry about the fact that islands are being wiped out by the rising waters of global war. Oh, come on. How, how dumb is all of this stuff? No, Lappin, stop insulting other people's religion. You can't call other people's beliefs dumb. They're beliefs. It's rude to call people's religion stupid. I must learn not to do that. And sure enough, climate change appeals to the religious fanatic in the religion of secular fundamentalism. And, uh, and those are the reasons. But you see, the, the point I'm making is that uh, when we look at how bad things are, and I, and I do want to clarify that, that, yes, things are very bad. It's not just the military, that our military power wanes. It's not just that our economy teeters and falters. And, um, but it's also, it reaches into the world of science, where we tend to think of science as uh, this absolutely rigid um, uh, discipline that provides reliable answers. No, it doesn't. It's not like that. Because when secular fundamentalism replaces biblical Judeo-Christian faith, then people's belief desire, people's belief instinct turns to something else. As I think it was C.S. Lewis who so brilliantly said, 
that when people reject belief in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in almost anything. And that's exactly right. And hence you've got this belief in global warming and in climate change. It's crippling our country. It's really, really bad news. And you know how much of your tax money went to propping up ultimately failed companies, many of them, including Solyndra um, and wind power companies. That Do you have any idea of how much extra goes on to your electricity bill to subsidize wind power? It's terrible. It's stupid. Oh, Lappin, there you go again, calling other people's religion stupid. How rude you are. But this obsession with pouring money into wind and solar, it's dumb. Oh, excuse me. Anyway, it is a religion. It's a false religion. It's a religion with a false god. It's a belief system that is really, really destructive to our country. Um, how's about uh, recycling? Right? Again, I was castigated, castigated years ago. Um, after a speech, it went all over the internet. Can you believe Rabbi Daniel Lappin doesn't believe in recycling? Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think it's, it's an outrage. These days in Seattle, the city of Seattle actually ferrets through your garbage to make sure that you're not putting anything in the wrong containers. You know that, right? Now, if the city of Seattle would send out Bibles to every household saying, we think you should have this Bible in a place of honor in your home, there would be an outrage. But the city of Seattle sends out three containers into everyone's kitchen, and they not only force you to maintain these little altars, these little worship centers in your kitchen, they force you to genuflect and, and go through a little ceremony. Oh, my pieces of glass and my bottles, you go here. Oh, my plastic goes here. Oh, my paper goes there. My composting stuff goes there. My garbage, oh, I shouldn't have any garbage left. Okay, it's a religion. Uh, you understand, don't you? Let me tell you something. Back, and, and we've got to wrap up, but you've got to know this. Uh, back in 2003, Mayor Bloomberg was the mayor in New York. And uh, you can go back and look at this. They suspended the city's recycling of metal, glass, and plastic. You know why? For budgetary reasons. But wait a sec. You probably believe, as you are meant to believe, that recycling makes money. You believe that, right? Weren't you told that? That, oh, we can recycle all that aluminum and the bottles and everything, and, oh, this is going to produce extra money for our city. I'm sure you believe that. Um, the uh, The program in New York of recycling cost the city $57 million every year because it's non-economical. The idea that you can sell the plastic and sell the glass and sell the aluminum that you collect for more than it costs you to do, it's nowhere near true. It's, nowhere, it's a lie to the extent of $57 million. The, uh, New York's recycling program, like many others around the country, most hemorrhage tax dollars. They all do. Seattle also. This idea that recycling makes sense, it doesn't make sense. But you dare not say it because it's an act of heresy. You are violating the official state religion of America. And so my point is that, yes, we are in very bad shape. And it's on all fronts. The science has become junk science. Education has become junk education. 
Uh, it's a hoax we pull on children, sending them to public school, government indoctrination schools. Um, it's a hoax. You know, the notion of giving them an education, not at all. Uh, the idea of letting people graduate with a bachelor's degree in gender studies or women's studies, or for that matter, by the way, climate studies, it's a hoax. There's no jobs. When last, can you tell me when last you saw an advertisement saying senior executive wanted or administrative assistant wanted or anybody, computer specialist wanted, must have a degree in women's studies? Right? When did you ever see such a thing? It doesn't exist. I'm showing you that it's all linked. The military situation, the economic situation, the education situation, the governmental situation, the corruption, the scientific, the, 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 the collapse of real science in America today, all part of the same malaise, all part of the same sickness. And when we realize, number one, that things are really bad, and we realize, number two, that all of these things are linked, these are not separate events, now we can home in on what the repair really is, on what it has to be. But maybe we'll take a closer look at that in a future program. For now, my friends, as I come to the end of the first program for the year 2016, I, until we come to our next show next week, for now, I, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, I sincerely wish you a week and a year of good health and prosperity. God bless. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand.